Good morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we seek your mercies upon our country. We have in so many ways forgotten and forsaken our heritage and turned away from you. And while we do ask for your mercies upon our nation, we most of all pray that you would grant us the grace of repentance to turn around and to return to you. We're thankful for the faithful who have gone before us and given us so much to be grateful for, and we long to see more faithful men and women raised up to serve you in this place. We also ask for your guidance for those who govern us, the president and vice president, the Congress, the courts, our governor and local officials, all those who seek to serve the common good by way of public office. Help them all to remember that The only just government is the one that honors you and serves its citizens rather than itself. And so we pray that the righteous will be exalted and the wicked will be brought low. May the idols of our land fall down before you. O Lord, grant your church peace and prosperity for the sake of the gospel. We long to see our children and our children's children established in a godly land where your name is honored where we might live quiet and peaceable lives, and where the knowledge of you would cover the land as the waters cover the sea. May we be spared in the midst of this current pandemic, even as your law reigns in our hearts and in our churches, families, and nation. We pray that you would remember mercy in the midst of judgment. Now, Lord, we pray you would open our eyes that we might see and hear. Grant, Father, uh, we, we pray uh, the grace of repentance of both per, for both personal and national sins. We repent of the sins of omission as well as commission. These sins include all the forms of idolatry, murder, anger, dishonesty, corruption, greed, sloth, lust, envy, compromise, gluttony, gossip, hypocrisy, impurity, ingratitude, profanity, theft, unforgiveness, untruthfulness, worldliness, worry, and the ultimate sin of pride. Forgive our apathy or indifference wherever we have allowed evil to flourish. We call you Lord, and so we ask for your help and strength so that we might honor and obey your holy commandments and resist the devil. Give a genuine zeal to repent and turn from our sins and enable us to become overcomers who commune with you. For Christ's sake, hear our prayer and grant our petition this day. May we live to see our land healed, and may all the kingdoms of the world truly know that you are God and that we have no other gods but you. May you get all the glory, honor, and praise. May your kingdom come quickly, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this prayer with great expectancy, looking upward for our ultimate salvation when you will return to set things right forever and ever. Bless us now as we eagerly sit under your authoritative and living word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to read from three short texts of the Bible, and it'll make a little more sense when we get started into the sermon. The first just simply being from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. 
He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And then finally from Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. And behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. I want to begin a short series titled, What's Wrong with the World? I think we all agree that something is badly wrong with the world. When a London newspaper asked the same question, G.K. Chesterton wrote back in and he responded and said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly. We could all add our names to that response. And again, because we all know it to be true, I'm broken. You're broken. We're all broken. So what happened? And where is the remedy? The Christian gospel purports to address both the question of the diagnosis and the remedy. So what is the Christian gospel? What is the good news? Can it be reduced to a pamphlet or do we need the entire Bible to understand it? You'll notice this morning as we opened, I read from the first book of the Bible, first verse of the first book, Genesis then somewhere there in the middle from Colossians, and then the last book of the Bible. So we want to talk today about the whole Bible. Is the gospel a set of propositions that simply must be understood and believed, or is it a mystical experience that can't be explained? Is it personal or is it corporate? The gospel, though, must have a context. Good news compared to what? What is the bad news? How bad is it? In answering these questions, we reveal our perspective on the gospel and on the Bible. So let's talk about that. The Bible is a big book. It's a long book. It's a long story. Sometimes this can be very daunting. It can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. And it's led many to try to reduce the Bible to a few books or a few chapters or even just a few verses. The Roman road or the four spiritual laws. It's led others to write it off as simply antiquated and irrelevant. Because, of course, only something modern could be trustworthy, right? The Bible is both simple and complex. This simplicity has often been misunderstood. Some have thought that we must find the lowest common denominator and that this is the gospel. We read, though, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, but the, the apostle warns us concerning some of Paul's writing. He said, according to the wisdom given to him, 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. So when we speak of the simplicity of the Bible, we don't mean that it is without difficulty. We simply mean that it is simple in unity while it is complex in its details. The details of history, places, people, events, and so forth. The details of doctrine, the theology of the Bible. Yet it is simple in its unity in that it it enables us to make sense of all those complex details. In other words, it is only in the context of the big picture that each person, place, or event can be properly understood. In fact, even our own lives begin to make sense in the context of the big picture of the Bible. It is its unity that makes the doctrine or the teaching clear. While we can summarize the gospel in the Bible, we cannot exhaustively comprehend either its depth or its breadth. We must continually go back to the living Word of God and, and to mine it and dig deeper and deeper to find its true treasures. As the Apostle Paul admonished the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, attaining to all the riches of the fullness of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible is a collection of historical stories. We talked about that last week. And those stories culminate in the one grand master story about Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book full of stories about God, about man, about sin, and ultimately about redemption. The Bible, then, is a comprehensive story. It traverses all of human history from creation to the last day. It also concerns itself with matters after human history, with time and eternity. It embraces every aspect of life, individuals, families, cultures. It includes all things visible and invisible, heaven and earth, men and angels, material and spiritual. This one story includes both the natural and the supernatural, ordinary events and extraordinary events, the mundane, and the miraculous. These are inspired historical reports of real people and real places and real events, and we also have revelations from the unseen realm of angels and devils. This one unified story is revealed over a long period of time by a variety of means, sometimes through Dreams or visions are face-to-face by apostles and prophets and by the Son of God himself. It has been divinely and providentially preserved, passed on by faithful men, preached in the world and delivered to the saints. Again, at the center of the story is Jesus Christ. All things were not only created by him, as our text says today, but created for Him. From Him, through Him, and into Him are all things. In Him, all things consist, are held together. 
He comprehends all of eternity. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. As we read in 1 Timothy 6, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. As we read again this morning from Revelation, He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last. He is the mediator of the covenant between God and man, the King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of the kings of the earth. He is, to use the Greek word, the monogenes, the unique Son of God, the Savior of His people, the light of the world, the bread of life. All power and authority have been given to Him on heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth, It's unto Him that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. No man comes to the Father but by Him. He has even accomplished victory over the great, ultimate, and last enemy, death. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. That's the claim of Christ. That's the claim of the Bible. Christ died to save broken people, to save sinners. In Ephesians 2, after a description of our lostness, being dead in trespasses and sin, we see those wonderful words, but God, being rich in mercy, God moved to do something. In 1 Peter 1, we read that we've been born again, given new life to a living hope. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But this is also the offense of the gospel. It becomes a stumbling block, according to the Bible, a rock of offense. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the universal kingship of Jesus Christ that is so threatening to the Caesars of this world. It is far more than the reign of Christ over an individual's heart or the individual believer that can't be tolerated. But the claims of the gospel, you see, extend far, far uh, beyond that as far as the curse is found. And that is the fact that troubles a rebel world. And so, our story begins once upon a time. We have to recognize that without the book of Genesis, had God not revealed himself, we just wouldn't know. But God has spoken and given us a record so that we would know. And so we have to remember that the Bible isn't like any other book. It is a revelation, a revealing of the mind of God to tell us things we couldn't know otherwise. And Let me pause a moment and just point out, actually, most everything you know, you know because somebody else told you. You know it based on authority. You know it because you read a book or a parent told you or a teacher told you, and you trusted them and you believed them. So it's not that surprising. So the question is, is the Bible trustworthy? Is it authoritative? Is this God speaking? And as believers, as those who follow Jesus Christ, that's what makes us believers. We do believe it. We believe God has spoken. 
We believe what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. We also looked at this the last couple of weeks, but again, 2 Peter 1. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in the Bible, the infinite, omniscient God reveals himself and the truth. It enables us to know what we otherwise could not know about God or about ourselves or about the world we live in. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so we're to receive the word of God as a gift that is able to give life. Romans 10:17. so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, uh, without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Jesus believed Genesis to be a historical account. The apostles likewise believed that, and therefore we should receive the book of Genesis as historical fact. The first 11 chapters of Genesis provide the essential basis for our understanding all the rest of the Bible. The sovereignty of God, man's original condition, the family, the fall, the curse, the promise of redemption, and so forth. This is why the battle over the accuracy and historicity of Genesis are so critical. This is why evolutionary theory sought to undermine the Bible. If the Bible is not reliable in the, in the beginning, then of course it's not reliable anywhere. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. So what has God revealed? We've, we, we're talking today about being broken and what's wrong. God hasn't revealed everything. But what he has revealed is necessary for us to both receive and to believe. As Jesus declared, it is written, again, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And yet the infinite God certainly retains much that's not revealed. So he hasn't revealed everything. We don't have the capacity for everything, but he has revealed to us those things that are essential. The same word that created everything, likewise governs and sustains all things. The Word of God is central because it defines and it sustains all of life. This is Christian cosmology. To depart from the Word is death. The Westminster Confession, uh, Westminster Catechism, excuse me, asks this question in uh, question seven. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory 
He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Question eight, how doth God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So many of the things that God does are secret, and some of the things God does are revealed. We're responsible for the things that he reveals. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so as we see, faith and obedience in and to his word are the inseparable conditions of life. God initiates, he speaks, we respond. In the beginning, God created. And so begins the record of how and why God brought the universe into existence. The created order is God's general or natural revelation of himself. The Bible is God's special revelation of himself. In it, he describes the relationship between himself and the creation. He also reveals his thoughts as well as his instructions to his creature, man. It's our duty to receive his instructions, to honor them by accurately discerning their meaning as he intended them, and then faithfully responding to them in faith and obedience. Psalm 103, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, and all we are, and all we are the work of your hand. We call this the creator-creature distinction. God is God, and we're not. He is independent. We are dependent. He is, fin- he is infinite, and we are finite. And so the Bible begins with man, mankind in paradise. Man's made in his image. He's God's special creation. He has dominion over the creatures or over the creation. He's the king of creation, and when Eve comes, she'll be the queen of creation In addition, God made man then a suitable helper and a companion. So man is in charge of this mission. He's in charge of tending to the garden. And his wife was made to be in submission, that is, coming under the very same mission, assisting her husband in his God-given mission. He was not complete without her. He needed her. He was dependent upon and, uh, and needing that kind of help. And now she comes along and together they will rule. Wise King Solomon later wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.29, Truly, this only have I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. Back to the Westminster Catechism, question 10. How did God create man? The answer, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. And so man and woman were in harmony with God and with the rest of creation. They walked with God. Everything was good. Everything was beautiful. It was paradise. Since God is the creator and we're his creatures, it is his prerogative to define our relationship to him as well as our relationship to others. He established all the terms of these relationships. He gets to tell us what to do. 
God doesn't negotiate with his creatures. Being the sovereign creator, he's under no obligation to enter into any relationship or fellowship with any creature, much less a creature that is sinful or rebellious. And so when God determines to fellowship with his creatures, he is condescending. He reaches down to graciously establish a relationship. And while Adam, uh, while Adam standing before God was conditioned upon his believing and obeying, nevertheless, it was always a relationship of grace, of God extending his favor to man. The very act of creation sets limits on the thing created, on both living and non-living things. That's what we would call definition. God defines the nature and the boundaries of any creature's habitation. The sun and the moon were put in their place to do their jobs. And we could go through all the various things that plants and the animals, but certainly man also was given certain limitations. All creatures owe their existence to God, and since they're created by the power of his word out of nothing, God said, let there be light, there was light. Each thing, therefore, has its place and God the, that God the Creator assigns to it. In the material world, the Bible tells us that the stars and the moon and the sun and the planets and the dry land and the water and the light and the dark are all assigned specific places and functions as defined by their Creator. This is also true of plants and animals that reproduce after their kind and are placed under the dominion of man. God likewise established the domains of angels and of men. And when any of God's creatures seek to go beyond the limitations that he's placed upon them, it is an act of rebellion and sin. It's a way of saying, I don't want God telling me what I can can and can't do. I want to make that determination for myself. In effect, the creature says, again, God is not going to instruct me or be authoritative over me. I will determine whether there are any limitations to me. And by the way, this is where a lot of our of the issues that we have in our own day over sexuality have come about. Uh, again, God's not going to tell me who I am or what I can do or who I can be. I want to define myself for myself. We see a first example of this type of rebellion exhibited in the fall of Satan or Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. In Jude 6, we read, And likewise the fallen angels with him, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So God placed Adam, the first man, as the federal covenant head of all mankind. He stood as our first parent, as a representative for all of us. He had a duty toward God to believe and obey him, and and likewise a responsibility to all his posterity, all of his descendants. And as it went with the covenant head, so it goes with us. Now, a covenant is a form of government. And since God is the creator of all mankind, he has the right of divine rule over mankind, and all mankind owes 
their allegiance to him. He sets the terms of all those relationships, their relationship to him, again, their relationship to all the other creatures, and to the degree that we believe and obey God and the terms of the covenant, we receive either blessings or curses or happiness or misery. So if we look around and we see a lot of misery, we we will understand very quickly that many of us have decided that we're going to step outside the limitations and boundaries that God has placed upon us. And he gave us those boundaries because he loves us. He knows that when we live within those boundaries, when we follow him, when we believe him, when we trust him, that that is the way of blessing, that is the way of happiness. And when creatures violate the terms of God's covenant, they don't believe, they don't obey, then what we get is chaos and misery. The conditions of God's gracious covenant with the first man were simply this, faith, and the evidence of that faith is obedience. Obedience doesn't produce faith. Obedience in itself is not what makes us right with God, but trusting God, faith in God. But that's always seen in obedience. Adam and his wife were to believe what God said, and the evidence of that belief would be that they did what God said. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's simply the way the creature expresses love, self-sacrifice. God will do it your way because that's what you said, and I love you. Throughout the Bible, we'll see this standard or condition of covenant faithfulness expressed over and over. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He believed God and he obeyed God in the building of the ark, and this brought salvation to Noah and to his household. Likewise, Abraham believed God and demonstrated uh, the truth of that faith when he obediently moved to sacrifice his own son Isaac, and God counted that faith as righteousness. Thus God blessed Abraham and his household and ultimately all the nations. So in the beginning of our story of God, man, sin, and redemption, everything is beautiful. And God saw that he, everything he made, and indeed he said it was very good. Everything was in its proper place. Man loved God, God loved, uh, and, excuse me, man loved God, and man loved man, and man loved the creation. We know this because man believed and obeyed God, and he followed his creator's instructions. And so our story has a good beginning, like most stories. It starts out good. And then something bad happens. What more could man ask for? Living in paradise, walking with God, living in peace. What could possibly cause him to risk it all? And so next Lord's Day, we'll take up that question. We'll begin to see what went wrong. Why are we broken? Why is there so much wrong with this world? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are broken Others are broken. Indeed, the whole world is broken. Therefore, we cry out to you for mercy and grace. We desperately need help because we can't fix ourselves. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we need need to to have resurrections. We are so thankful for the promise of your word, which tells us, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.